Welcome to Midnight Conversations. I'm Anandanambi Karaja. And I am Stephen Banos. Welcome, Stephen. How are you going? Um, a little bit sick today. Oof. Well, yeah, nothing serious, yeah. I don't think. Just a bit, well, just a bit of a sore throat. Yeah, well, well <laughs> I mean, in these times, whenever someone says just a little sore throat, I think uh, cause for concern. How, you, how, mm. how are you feeling in general? Do you feel uh, possessed by COVID or is it a... Non-COVID-related sickness. I'm, I'm going to assume it's not COVID, mm. but that could be dangerous. Yeah. So if people around me start dropping off, um, okay. it's probably my fault. Uh, <laughs> if, if there's, if there's a, <laughs> if any cluster cases occur in Canberra, we can, we, can, mm. we know where the problem lies. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Mm. You, you're all well. Yeah. Well, I don't have COVID. Yeah. So <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a relative sense, I'm, I'm excellent. No. Yeah. Things are. Things are good, um, mm. and uh, I'm excited to get into today's paper, which is a real interesting one. Uh, it's about uh, the extent and drivers of gender imbalance in neuroscience reference lists. Um, so really, really interesting one about how uh, women and men are cited and referenced in papers in neuroscience. And so before we get into this, I'd like to just cover some terminology um, Stephen, do you know what citations are, or what is, what does the word citation mean to you? Cita- it has uh, many meanings to me, mm-hmm. uh, but in in uh, science and in terms of like scientific papers, we're talking about when you refer to the work of somebody else and you write their name on your paper. Pretty uh, much, kind of. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> you're there essentially. So if I was to, if you wrote, wrote a paper and published it uh, on the effects of chocolate on hunger and feelings of pain. <laughs> I'm just, just eating a chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you if you did a paper on that, and then I, I was doing a paper on uh, the effects of chocolate on something, and I wanted to show in my introduction that, oh, you know, it's there was previous research that showed that it uh, chocolate helps reduce your feelings of faintness, I would cite your research in that case. And so you can monitor a paper citation. So every time a paper is published, if you go on Google Scholar and you search that paper up, there'll be a little number next to it which shows how many times it's been cited. Ooh, how many? How many? How many times have your papers been cited? Ooh, it's a it's a good question. It's an important metric uh, for me. I think I'm in around the fifty to sixty range. Oh, so, that's yeah. impressive. I think. Oh, I don't I... know what to compare it to, but it sounds <laughs> impressive. Well, that's the thing. It's it's hard to know. Uh, yeah, it it depends. So. It depends on what the research is. There's certain types of research that are more highly cited than not. So I think like 25 of those citations have come from two of my systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So mm. those types of papers are more likely to be cited than individual research uh, papers. So there's, yeah, lots of different reasons for why papers are cited or not cited. But yes. uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> overall, <laughs> overall, I mean, I, I'm happy. Always, always growing every day, you know, things are getting better and better. And so um, that's what a citation is. And that's how it works. So in the context of this study, it was saying, well, is it the fact that when I do a paper and I cite some sort of other paper to support a statement or an idea or, or conclusion, is it that I'm inherently biased in my in the ways in which I cite authors, and I am more likely to cite authors who are men compared to women. And that's what this study was 
interested to know. They wanted to investigate whether there were gender patterns present in neuroscience citations. So they looked at the top five uh, neuroscience journals and they looked at the reference lists of them and they did this interesting thing. So in some fields, the citation, the order of authorship. So authorship is just when you've written a journal paper, the number you have the uh, authors and how they're listed in uh, for the paper. And in some fields, I think um, the authorship order doesn't matter. But in neuroscience in particular, there is some sort of inherent underlying meaning towards the authorship. Generally, the first author is the one who has either done the most work or has led the paper in terms of getting it through to publication. So maybe did a large, you'd expect them to do a large part of their writing, the analyses, maybe designing the study as well. So all these sort of factors feed in, but it's a it's a broad rule and they, they, they can change based on different labs. Um, and the last author in, in your science research is generally the leader, like the, the lab uh, head. So often when you start your career, an important metric is the number of first author papers that you have. So how many papers have you led and sort of driven to publication? Um, but then as you sort of progress, there's this weird shift where you actually want to start becoming the last author to show that you're sort of in charge of the global project and helping facilitate this research occur. So that's why first researcher and last researcher on a paper generally has the most meaning in terms of this. Does that make sense, Stephen? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's super interesting. Can I get a bit more insight into this little world? Because I don't know much about it. So you, you work in, you have like a lab. So that has yeah. a number of people. And then yeah. what, does like one person come up with a hypothesis and then they sort of like put together a team of people that are going to help like... Yeah, in, in a way, that? a crack team of like superheroes <laughs> who fight the problem. Yeah, in, okay. in a way, it's it's like, uh, so you can either have a group that are all tasked to work on a project together, or it could be, you know, it starts off with the lead author and a supervisor who are discussing ideas, and then they see how are they going to do it. And then from there, they say, well, what skills do we have access to in our team and who would be relevant to bring on to the paper? Mm -hmm. And there are certain standardized criteria. There's actually a minimal criteria um, that have been put up to um, show, do you meet the criteria for authorship. You can't just throw anyone on. So Stephen, if I you know, was doing a paper, I couldn't just throw your name onto the uh, journal. You have to actually sign this sort of statement that says, yes, I've significantly contributed to the idea, the design, or the um, statistics or something into that paper you've had a substantial contribution to. And that's okay. generally how it, how it works. Can, can you only get assistance from people within your lab? Or like, if you're disappointed no. with your mates, you can like look outside to other labs? <laughs> that's right. Well, I, I it's often a good thing to have people outside of your lab so that you have different perspectives and point of view. So I try to have at least someone who's outside of my lab and regular collaborators from different labs because it builds this inter-lab collaboration. So you're more likely to, if they have an idea, and they don't have the expertise within their lab. They're like, oh, you know, Anandin isn't really good at stats. Maybe I'll put him on this paper to do that or this. And so that's sort of how you improve your overall research output as well through these collaborations. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, today we're going to be talking about uh, this study, which looks at the first author and the last author. And they said, is the first author a man or a woman? And is the last author of a paper a man or a woman? And then they use this metric to sort of see what the impact was on that paper and were they likely to cite other papers. So there's four sort of categories. You either have a paper where the first author and last author were both men, 
uh, first author was a man, last author was a woman. Uh, first author is woman, last author was a man, and then woman, woman, right? First author is woman, last author was a woman. So those are the four categories that they looked at, and they broke down these papers in terms of that. And it was really interesting in, in the way in which they did it. They sort of created this algorithm to, based on probabilities, to guess whether the author was a man or a woman. And then they looked at a subsample and of this, like 200 papers, to check that the al- algorithm was correct. But what was interesting was the algorithm was identifying them 70% of the time to some, or some, some metric. Like greater, if it was greater than 70% of chance that it was a man, it was assigned a man, and then greater 70% chance that the algorithm identified it as a woman, it was assigned as a woman. And they made a really interesting point that I thought here, which was that it didn't matter what the actual uh, sex was of the person in the study. It was really, if you think the study is a man, that's the bias they're trying to tap into, not whether the person was actually a mm. man or a woman. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's what they've done here. And so they created this algorithm and did this, and, and they looked at um, if you are more likely to cite other male papers or female papers. But does this premise make sense to you, Stephen? Do you have any questions from here? Mm, not not yet. Keep, okay. keep, keep exploring the results, and we'll <laughs> yeah. get to some questions later on, I reckon. Sounds good. Yeah, cool. Well, overall, um, what they found is that there's a few, a few things. They noted that uh, the number, proportion of articles with women as the first or last author significantly increased between 1995 and 2018. So, uh, what they found was initially, I think the rate was uh, approximately, what was it? I think 0.6% per year to increase. So it ended up being uh, around 36% at 1995 of women, women, first author, last author. And then 2018, it was 50% uh, women, women, that's uh, first author and last author. So that was was really interesting in the trends of authorship. I think it's maybe a reflection of more women in neuroscience research, but also more women in leading labs in neuroscience research who are the like last author. So that was that was a really interesting finding. Uh, but then when they looked at the citation imbalance overall, and they looked at if you're more likely to cite a man or a woman, uh, they found that uh, overall men were more likely to cite men. Essentially, uh, that was that was their finding. Um, and similarly. Uh, women were also more likely to cite women. and But because of the proportion of those papers that are published by men versus those published by women, you have this overall imbalance where more papers are citing male researchers. And the, the inherent uh, value in citations, uh, which I didn't really touch on at the start of this pod, is the fact that when your paper is highly cited, that's a metric that is often used to help determine whether or not your research ha- is impactful. And then if it's impactful, it's more likely to be funded by other organizations in the future. So mm. those are the main findings from, from today's study. So what are your thoughts, Stephen? Do you, is this um, something that you understand why it's going on? Do you have any hypotheses as to why this is the mm. case? Um, yeah, thoughts? look, I, I mean, I'm going to be kind of careful because it is a fairly sensitive issue and it's mm-hmm. something that's been fairly politicized. But I, um, I don't think it would be a shock to, to many people that there aren't a lot of women in science. Um, I know particularly in uni, there was all sorts of like pathways and scholarships set up trying to bring more females into science. Um, in terms of kind of this 
I guess it's like an unconscious bias, right? Where mm. men are selecting other men. I mean, it might so. not be, it might not be yeah. unconscious, but yeah. I guess I guess that's that's what's being insinuated is that there is some unconscious bias. Is mm. that something that's talked about in your lab? Are people actually like told to be aware of this? Yeah, definitely. Yeah? I okay. think um, my supervisor quite often says that um, the cards are stacked against women in particular in certain fields within science, but particularly neuroscience. So he's mm. he's always um, advocating a responsibility that men have to ensure that, you know, as people who have this sort of advantage, are we ensuring that we're using it in a careful and thoughtful way that is helping everyone benefit? Um, mm. I think an interesting discussion that comes from this study is the idea of, so what do we do, right? Because the question is, um, one argument is that you develop quotas in which that you make sure that you're uh, citing more mm. women so that more women are cited as a result. Um, but often, you know, uh, we I had a discussion in our lab about this and one person said that, what should be the important metric is the quality of someone's work, mm. uh, regardless of the, whether they're man or woman. And that should be the overall metric of how good are they and how good is the research. However, this is something that I thought of for a long time as well. But I, I counter-argued um, this point a few years ago, which was the fact that I think sometimes when we look at two people and you say, okay, well, person A is more qualified than person B. Let's give the job to person A. That sort of reasoning doesn't really account for the history of how those people came to have the skills that they have. So in some respects, you could argue that, well, if women are disadvantaged and not likely to pursue STEM careers, then they're less likely to maybe have the opportunities to be involved in research and develop these skills. So when it gets to this endpoint, you have men who seem comparably more appropriate for the job, you know, as a broad generalization, but it, it actually may uh, reflect an imbalance earlier on. So then the question is, so how do we counteract this? And then you see in universities, year 12 students, often there's a disadvantage bonus point scheme of if you're, um, you know, from low socioeconomic background, if you had financial hardship, you will gain bonus points to help account for this. But it's, I think it's a very tricky area because then you have to start deciding precisely how much of a disadvantage do you have versus do I have versus someone else and how do you quantify that and account for it. I think something needs to be done, but like it's an important discussion as to what exactly. But what are your, what are your thoughts? It's, it's difficult, right? Um, we, I mean, we live in a meritorious society where we value like metrics and quality, or we, I guess we try to above all. Mm. But then there's also this idea that equality is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to find that balance, I guess, comes down to whether there is actual evidence of unconscious bias. When you yeah. sort of put it on people in power to say, well, hang on, there's an inequity here that you need to remedy. Mm. Are they acting on an emotional narrative of inequality or are they acting, making, you know, policy decisions or whatnot based on some evidence of unconscious bias? And I guess that's where this paper is great because it is actually saying, well, hang on, here, here you go. Here's, here's, here's a great piece of evidence that some unconscious bias exists in terms of mm. citation. And I think this yeah. is the argument as well, right? In the sense of the people in power making these decisions, it, there needs to be someone who is 
aware of the disadvantage that women face, which essentially means having women represented in all levels of, of mm. you know, employment. Um, but I think it's interesting. I remember Sheryl Sandberg, she was the CEO or chief operating officer of uh, Google, moved, transitioned to Facebook. But when she was at Google, she um, noted that she was uh, pregnant and she had to walk all the she was like heavily pe- pregnant and had to walk from wherever she parked her car all the way into the office and she was like well why don't i we have like a pregnancy car parking spot so that it's closer to the door women don't have to walk as far and be as uncomfortable and and be able to get there and so she sort of caught herself and said i'm a woman and i've been here for years and i've never thought about this ever uh, but only until i've been pregnant I'm now thinking and considering all these things and now I'm aware of these things. So it's interesting when you consider, you know, even just having women in power isn't enough uh, or in, in, you know, at the table isn't enough. You need to have representation everywhere in some respects and hear out what are the issues that people are facing um, and try to account for it. So yeah. it's it's pretty crazy. A great book I've been reading um, has been, um, I think it's like uh, Invisible Women, it's called. It's uh, how... Uh, data bias has been leading decisions. And so what it argues is that uh, women aren't often accounted for in the process of data collection. And so judgments that are based on this data um, make informed policies that disadvantage women. For example, a common, uh, an example I had in this book was one about um, uh, toilets. And they said that the size of a male toilet and the size of a female toilet is the same, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, there's always a massive line in the females' toilets, wherever you are. If you're at an event or a movie theater, but the male toilet, it's not as not as big, right? And the book was arguing that there's a lot of reasons for this. One of which is the fact that men have uh, urinals in their toilet, so they're you can be more efficient. You don't have you don't take up space with all these stalls. It's just you, there's urinals. People go in and out. And um, the second factor was the fact that uh, women have you know sanitation needs that happen, and often at times that will extend the duration at which they're in the bathroom as well. Um, the book was also saying quoted some statistics that women are more likely to go into the bathroom with their children than men. Um, mm-hmm. Not all women and all men, but the, the, on average that was the case. And so this would delay the process of going in and out of the bathroom. And all these factors um, link up to showing that actually when we consider the needs toiletry needs of men and women women actually need a bit more space and more cubicles and more of these facilities to ensure that there is equity but it's uh, not fair but what are, you, what are your thoughts on that um i mean like when i go into a stall i mean like that's that's my happy place like the rest of the world vanishes and i'm like all right i can sit here forever so i can see right. <laughs> but yeah i mean obviously that's a great example of where like maybe you know clear-cut equality same size bathrooms that's that's not really you know Mm. helpful or useful or logical in that sense Mm. um so yeah i look i i don't know it's 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 a real it's a really it's a really tricky topic to discuss Mm. because every situation is different and comparing men and women doesn't always you know go so well um how so like I mean, in my in my personal life, I I t- tr- like never want to say that I'm a, like I never want to use me being a man as the basis for me like uh, having priority in any circumstance. That's very right. vague. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Right. 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 
I um I don't know. I guess I guess like I've I've I tend to see men and women as equal. I I really tend not to not to see that uh, like see the differences and when the differences are kind of presented to me is like oh well hang on women like are actually disadvantaged in these certain ways you need to adjust your life I guess I wasn't really thinking that there was that difference to begin with I maybe that's the problem maybe that's maybe that's the problem how do you correct for a bias that you're unaware of I guess and so and yeah it's it's critical I, th- I think there's a, a lot of things that need to be done and I think the discussion isn't had enough and as a result you know people I think go for easier solutions than the more difficult ways of thinking through so well what do we need to do here to address if we agree that there is an imbalance here how do we address this and what's the appropriate way um, and so yeah it's it's there are aren't any clear-cut answers but hopefully these examples you know raise the discussion and have people think about well what 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 could be done and where are these imbalances and you know it happens in daily life like I, I'd encourage anyone to to read that book uh, in invisible women um I think Carolina Cortez or something to that effect and uh, it's yeah it, it opened my eyes into some biases that were were there that admittedly didn't really understand I mean even in this podcast it's it's two men right talking about different things and then it's also yeah. this study highlights how there are the limitations like it just considers men and women and there's you know de- definitely other genders that are accounted for that aren't um spoken about in this study in particular but uh i think even even that you're just adding layers to the issues that need to be accounted for so yeah crazy crazy hmm. stuff but hopefully hopefully it, may, it gives people some interesting food for thought and that's what these podcasts are all about um, yeah how yeah. many and, um how many how many of your uh, 50 odd citations do you think were this is the thing i i don't i really don't know i would that that's why i was very uh, surprised by this because i i don't process the sort of sex of the authors especially the first or last authors i just i just do cite the studies that are relevant to the point that i'm trying to make and so um I mean, there's often times where I'll look at the lab or the country that the lab is from. And so there's definitely some biases there, but I've never looked at um, gender. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't know. I'd have to go back individually and check each paper. So don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> but even, even then, how do, how do you know what whether you were choosing it because it was a man or, or because... And that's, that's what this paper is arguing, that there must be some sort of unconscious bias that's either there mm-hmm. or it's a habitual practice that, you know, this bias has been there early early in the years and as a result uh, of habit it's just done without thinking and that's where the bias is there so yeah. mm. Mm. but on, on that note Stephen, any final thoughts anything you want to add to this discussion um not really i'm too scared to go <laughs> to comment deeply on this i really am <laughs> you should but um, this podcast shouldn't be a place to be scared i mean i think it's it's all about pro you know i don't think anyone should be crucified on any thoughts that they have that's what educated discussions are all about being mm-hmm. able to say an idea have someone counter it and then think well does that make sense or does it not make sense and, and then mm-hmm. from there improve your worldview like i said for th- there's many things that my point point of view and perspective i used to think that it should be merit that accounts for who gets what job and it's only through discussions with other people and having these conversations that i actually you know have different perspectives and these perspectives should be able to change over time you know like often 
people crucify politicians in particular for, oh, they changed their view, they said this, they said that, and they feel so constricted in what they can and can't do. But I think mm. having an informed society means having one that is able to say ideas, make mistakes, and then learn from d- informed discussions to get better. And I think that's where these conversations yeah. are. I, I, mean, I mean, I guess my key thought is if you're going to take measures to remedy uh, an issue where your basis is unconscious bias, you need really, really strong evidence um, before you before you take action because you may actually be causing problems um, th- through what you think is a remedy. That's right. Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, and on that note, <laughs> cool. I think we'll wrap up. But Stephen, uh, you may notice I've got something in my hand. Oh, uh, dear. Right What's happening? I do. And I noticed that in a... You know, as the podcasts have wrapped up towards the end, you know, we thank each other and we thank the listeners and there's not really a smooth ending to the podcast. So I, in this COVID uh, lockdown, I have been learning guitar. So I thought I'd uh, sing us out a little intro. Um, if there, sing us the out. Gu- All right. There's the guitar of people. A little, <laughs> people little bit out of tune, I can tell already. Oh, is it? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll give this a go. Um, but I did write a little song. It's a little little song. Um, it's it's about midnight conversations. Our podcast, you and me, uh, <laughs> together. Right. So hopefully you can sit back, relax, and enjoy this song. Ready? Bring it. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, you just listened to midnight conversations. Midnight conversations. Midnight conversations. Midnight conversations. <laughs> I gotta say, better than I expected. Yeah, nice, <laughs> awesome. I'll get better and better at that. <laughs> cool. Thanks, guys. Hope you enjoyed it, um, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Love it. <laughs>